Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, it's T with the UFOs Want to Tell You Something. This week I want to present to you the 1992 MIT Alien Abduction Roundtable with Bud Hopkins, Dr. David Jacobs, Richard Hall, and a couple other dudes. I mean, it is fascinating. You guys are going to love it. Before we get to that, I want to say a couple things. I promise this isn't one of my rants. On the 25th, I'm going to have on Kathleen Martin, and I'm going to make up for my Betty and Barney Hill episode. As you may or may not know, she's the niece of Betty Hill, and I want to give you guys a better episode on that. I feel like I owe it to you. After that, I'm going to be taking a short break. Now, this is due to the fact that my audio quality isn't exactly the best. I'm actually going to build a sound booth. I record this stuff in my garage next to my bike. So please excuse that, I want to give you guys better quality, make these episodes better for you. It won't be too long and I'll be back. In the meantime, I'm working on a book and I've been doing it over the last couple weeks as I've been posting these presentations. The book is called Dark Black Eyes, now it's a working title but it's about the alien abduction phenomena. What I wish to do is explain the alien abduction phenomena, some encounter cases, and what the contactee or experiencer goes through, the aftermath, and what leads up to that. So what I would like to do is ask you, if you've been abducted or had a contact experience, please email me at theufos at yahoo.com or hit me up on Facebook. I'll put you in the book, and you can remain anonymous. I'll give you a pseudonym. This is for the abductee and contactee community, as well as new researchers coming into the field. As you may know from listening to my podcast, and considering it's based around alien abductions and contact experience, you know that the abductee community means quite a lot to me. I wish to help in any way I possibly can. Because you who have had the contact experience hold the key to the enigma of the UFO phenomenon. Now with that being said, Let's get to our presentation. I hope you guys enjoy it. Keep on kicking it.
In June 1992, an extraordinary meeting took place at a major university in Cambridge, Massachusetts, concerning the UFO abduction phenomenon. The abduction study conference attracted mental health practitioners, UFO investigators, and abduction witnesses from throughout North America and around the world. Following the conference, a group of investigators and therapists gathered together for a provocative discussion of UFO abductions. The participants included Dr. Thomas E. Bullard, Assistant Professor of Folklore at Indiana University, John Carpenter, Licensed Clinical Social Worker and Psychiatric Therapist in Springfield, Missouri, Dr. David Gottlieb, a physician and therapist in Toronto, Canada. Richard Hall, a writer-editor, member of the National Board of the Fund for UFO Research, and author of a book on unidentified flying objects. Bud Hopkins, a New York City artist and UFO investigator, and author of two books on UFO abductions. Dr. David Jacobs, associate professor of history at Temple University, and author of a recently published book on UFO abductions. And Dr. David Pritchard, a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and coordinator of the Abduction Study Conference. The discussion was moderated by Richard Hall. What exactly is an abduction report? Uh, what is it that people typically report in an abduction case? Eddie, could you tell us? The basic abduction report is, is an account of someone taken from the highway, from a bedroom, from the open air, taken into an unusual environment, by usually very short gray beings of, an, of humanoid but non-human description, given a physical examination of some sort, and then uh, returned home. Sometimes the cases get more elaborate as the person has a conversation with the beings. And in a few cases, you also get even more elaborate descriptions of uh, uh, transport to some very strange, seemingly otherworldly environment. But the basic classic abduction report, the, in, in those reports, the key elements are the capture, the examination, and the return. Okay. Um, maybe uh, Bud and Dave Jacobs could give us an example or two of a case they've been looking into. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, should be mentioned is that this doesn't just happen necessarily one person at a time. And so if uh, two or three people may be abducted, say from an automobile or whatever, uh, when they're taken into the ship, I should add, they're sometimes floated as if they're weightless, and uh, very rarely do they simply walk. But when they're taken into the ship, they're generally then separated one from another, so they'll have uh, very consonant memories up until the time they finally go into the ship. And uh, I have cases involving as many as seven people that were taken at once, but mm -hmm. the description is exactly as you've described it. Okay. I might add also that uh, that the people who say these things are apparently a random uh, cross-section of the population uh, and there doesn't seem to be any patterns that we can find in terms of age or ethnic group or educational level or, or anything of that sort and they all describe basically the same experiences and many of the reports are, 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 are fairly complex and uh, and yet uh, and there's of course a variation in detail in them, in them but of course there's also a, a, a certain precision in their detail that is uh, very very extraordinary and uh, and constitutes uh, one of the core features of the abduction phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Okay, let me ask. Uh, May I just sure say, pitch uh, in? Uh, what about the issue of uh, what age are the people when they, these things happen, yeah. and whether they happen more than once? The uh, cutoff age for the first abduction is al almost always about 30 or 35. It's 
Abductions seem to be an, an affliction of the young, sometimes starting at a very early age, almost at the cradle, certainly by age, say, five or six. And it usually goes on the rest, may go on the rest of your life or a good part of it. I think it's also important to realize that the, these cases in which a small child reports an abduction, sometimes in great detail, uh, a child that I've worked with uh, told his mother with great terror the next morning that he had been floated out a window by three little beings. They went up a blue beam of light into a ship. He was put on a table. Things were done to his body. Uh, some children have then demonstrated to their parents that where a mark was, a cut was put on the body and so on. And these are children two, three, four, five years old even. So we're not getting a, uh, something that's feeding back through films or whatever. Yes, there is a remarkable lot of detail that keeps recurring from people who know nothing about the phenomenon, who know, know nothing about other people's cases, and as you said, even little children who have no possibility of, of remembering will still say me, the same thing. Let me also say this, that uh, at the same time we do get uh, quite a, a large number of uh, reports from people uh, who have had these experiences from the time that they were, were small children and who now might be in their 60s or 70s and are still having the, the experiences as well. And the experiences have a similarity basically with other people's experiences. In other words, there's a, a change in the way uh, in which they might be handled uh, from being a child uh, to an adult, uh, but the, all the cases seem to correlate according to age as well. All the adults basically say they're treated in one way and children are treated in another way to a certain extent. Okay, now we've just come from an important conference in which we've been addressing this subject. I'd like to ask Dave Pritchard to tell us what exactly was the purpose of this conference? Uh, you know, what did we hope to accomplish with it? Well, you know, of course, like any conference, you have a number of purposes and you try to balance them off. But I, I think first and foremost in a field like this, uh, it's very uh, important to bring the researchers and the abductees uh, or experiencers, whatever you want to call them, and together. And in this case, we also brought in a lot of related uh, professionals uh, as well. Um, it's important to bring them together just to talk and to share the ideas and, and uh, in the presentations to present the uh, latest results uh, in the field. Uh, a specific objective that differentiates this uh, conference from many of the uh, earlier uh, meetings held at which abductees were a, a small or medium part of the proceedings were that here they were the entire conference, uh, almost five days, was focused just on abductions, uh, no UFOs, no crop circles, and uh, secondarily that we tried to bring in a wider uh, group of professionals than is normally the case. We tried to bring in people, the psychologists, uh, you know, for instance, who are uh, experts in ritual abuse or uh, um, some sort of related uh, collective mental uh, aberrative phenomena, uh, dissociative phenomena. We tried to bring in uh, scientists and even theologians. I mean, this is a, this problem, I think, when you really get into it, is extremely broad. It's not just a simple matter of being the table examined and, and put back. And uh, certainly it has a tremendous effect on the uh, experiencers. Um, of course, the third objective of the conference was to have a really good discussion and, uh, you know, at least uh, the total amount of time allocated to discussion was about half of the presentation time. It wasn't just you make your presentation and then you dodge a couple questions and sit down. I mean, we really had 
a good discussion, by which I mean it was extensive uh, and it was critical. And we had a number of critics, uh, of mostly of the methodology or of the interpretation. Uh, in fact, we even had uh, a couple of people who were quite skeptical there. And then the final uh, purpose of the conference is to put out a proceedings that reflect what went on and reflect this field pretty much from top to bottom, left to right, or however many dimensions you think it has. Okay. Uh, we'll get a little, a little later, we'll get into uh, what we think we've accomplished here, but let me just ask the therapists, uh, what were your expectations coming into the conference? What did you think we, or hope we would accomplish? I had, well, there were two things that I was hoping to take away from. One was to collect more clinical data and learn the results of clinical surveys that other people had done, which will help me in my diagnosis and my treatment. The other was to have a bunch of clinicians together and investigators and abductees representing a wide variety of experience so we can begin to put together some basic guidelines on how to proceed from a, from a therapeutic point of view. Mm -hmm. John? As therapists, we all work in such isolated fashion far away from each other, so each time we have an opportunity to come together like this, it's, it's like a family reunion of sorts, although there's always new members that we haven't seen before. Uh, learn to pull them in and, and learn what their interests and expertise are. I personally learned a great deal from the specialists in other uh, parts of the field, uh, different aspects. I had never uh, encountered such expertise and knowledge regarding, and that was quite helpful to me and will continue to be an ongoing process. Mm -hmm. It's also quite helpful to hear from those who have experienced the phenomenon, and again, a representation from all across the country, and to see what was similar among their uh, experiences and especially needs. I think if I can just add, one of, sure. the, one of the things that made this meeting really special for me was the wide diversity of specialists that were invited to speak and invited to participate because one of my major concerns as a therapist is differential diagnosis. Someone may present believing they have an abduction experience, but I have to separate out the true abduction experiences from other things which may resemble it closely or may resemble it not at all. And we had people here who were expert in dissociative phenomena, somebody with ritual abuse, and uh, psychologists, psychometricians, and so on. It was very helpful for me to try to hone in on the people that I should really be identifying as abductees. Okay, good. Let me uh, ask the investigators from their perspective what their expectations were coming into the conference, and, and you can go right ahead into what you think we've accomplished. We'll talk later about where we go from here, but so far, what you think we may have accomplished. Well, from my point of view, I would think the uh, the most significant thing is, is pretty much what Dave uh, Gottlieb said, that we got so many people and so many diverse points of view together. We got to see what people were doing in the field, how their different perspectives can make a contribution to our understanding of what's going on. And I, I think it was a very enlightening sort of thing to see not only the, the clinical side, but the investigative side, and all the variety of opinion. And there was a lot of discussion about the interactions between and among investigators and therapists and the perceivers. That was a good part of the conference. Maybe I'd like to talk about that a little bit. Well, go ahead. Actually, it's not exactly to that point. All right, go ahead. But um, <clears throat> the thing that uh, was most valuable to me 
I think is lies in the area of just the very things that uh, Dave Motley uh, mentioned. I think, uh, for instance, a woman who spoke about uh, her specialty, which is treating post-traumatic stress disorder victims, uh, what seemed to work better, uh, what their strategies of denial, their, the various systems they use to handle experiences and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, even though she is working with uh, Vietnam War vets and other people, rape victims and so forth, uh, the, the parallels are so extraordinary with what I run into uh, practically daily with uh, abductees. It was extremely helpful to get her perspective on treatment and uh, behavior, symptoms and so forth. Mm -hmm. Because at, not being a trained therapist, of course, it's extremely important for me to get as much raw material as mm -hmm. I can from these sources. And I think for the investigators, at least speaking for myself, all of that side of the program was extraordinarily important. Yes. I, I agree with that. It was uh, gave me uh, an insight into into various uh, treatments and, and ways to approach the subject. I think the conference also showed me uh, basically uh, where people are at uh, on a personal level, how they confront this uh, phenomenon and all the variations that one sees across the society. On a professional level, how people are investigating it, how they're doing research, uh, it points directions as to. Uh, how far we've gone in, and what we need to do in the future mm -hmm. as well. And, and it kind of brings it all together in sharp relief, and it's, a, it's an enormous benefit in that regard. You know, just one added thought here. What was so fascinating to me about the role of the abductees at the conference, the uh, scientists and clinicians, therapists, and the investigators, is that in a strange way, each one of us is participating in the world of the other two to a much greater extent than we thought. Even one of the uh, uh, therapists suggested that uh, those of us who were doing this work with people uh, who've had these experiences are somehow picking up through just association and osmosis, I guess, some of the same symptoms and anxieties of the people yeah. we're actually working with. Mm -hmm. And I think that nobody can do an investigation without doing de facto therapy. Yes. And nobody can do therapy without, in a strange way, with such an unusual subject, being a kind of pioneer investigator. So we're all three, in a strange way, infinitely more interlocked with one another's worlds than we had thought. How do the therapists feel about uh, this relationship? I think we're still trying to work on uh, exactly how to define it. I think basically Bud's point is, is exactly right. Uh, whether I'm working with an abductee or any other kind of a problem or syndrome, as a therapist, I am de facto an investigator mm -hmm. because I, the, it's a dynamic, organic process. I'm learning more about the person and more about his biography, his or her biography, and so on. And I think it's true uh, from the other the other direction. One of the things that we were talking about today, and it was it was an interesting discussion back and forth, is uh, how does one balance the uh, the therapist and the investigator's roles? One person said that there should be a triad. There should be an investigator, a therapist, and an experiencer who, as a team, should move in and deal with each uh, experiencer. Was one suggestion, and I think out of out of out of this conference is probably going to come uh, a, a working group which will work towards a proposal for how to answer these questions in a way that, that the entire community can accept and debate so we, we can introduce it into the into the public forum and it can be our community policy. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I would just like to interject that um, it, it seems, you know, the key in this whole field is the tremendous uh, impact uh, and just feeling that something important has happened that, that you get when you speak to the abductees. That's where it all starts. Yes. 
but I've, and at uh, previous meetings where there have been uh, abductee panels or presentations, you know, that's what's come across most strongly. But at this one, I had much more the feeling that they were beginning to talk to us and say, mm -hmm. you know, some of you people have been too narrow, you haven't opened yourself to this full experience. Uh, and uh, the, and as, as Bud said, I think uh, you're, you're partly a participant in this, not just an observer. Yes, and they, they spoke uh, rather strongly about the problem they have in uh, establishing their relationships with both therapists and investigators. Would you like to address that a little bit? <laughs> Well, I'd like to actually start off, I mean, that's clearly one of the really underlying dichotomies yes. in the people who are looking at the uh, abductees. You know, you have the investigators who are assuming that there is some underlying reality, in, in many cases, not all of them. Uh, and then they're trying to find this out, you know, without distortion, uh, you know, by the, the emotions of the uh, percipient, which is extremely difficult to do, but they're trying to get through that somehow. Get, get out, get around the confabulation or the misapprehension and so on. Then on the other hand, there's the therapy people who are really trying to change the way that these people look at their experience without particular regard for its origin mm -hmm. and help them come to grips with it, view themselves as uh, survivors rather than victims or even there were some reports here of going beyond that uh, and changing in a quite global way their perspectives on the whole thing. See, the problem for, for, for John and myself and the therapists who were here is that uh, most of us are working in, this is a practical problem, most of us are working in regulated professions and at any time we can be called up to justify our actions as being, as being, as being following the accepted standards and practices of the community. So we're caught in a really difficult situation. On the one hand, we recognize what's going on here. We don't, may not know exactly what it is, but there are people who are isolated and confused, they're in pain, and they need help. We're interested, and we want to do as a public service to step in and try to use what skills we have. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, all of our training and experience is to recognize a particular syndrome, look at the research that's been done in the medical literature and apply it so that we can go back to our, our colleagues and our peers and say, oh, this is what we're doing. Maybe the case didn't turn out right, but not all cases will turn out right. At least we did what you believe to be accepted practice. And there are no such standards here, certainly not if I go back to my licensing board. So we have to be, we, we walk a very fine line. We want to treat the experiencer with respect. We want to collect information so we can understand what we're dealing with so we can do a better service to the experiencer without going too far off in the data collection and without going too far off in our own conceptualization of the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And that's, uh, that takes a tremendous amount of, of thinking and discipline and dialogue, and that's what this week was all about. Right. I think those are extremely important points. Uh, those who have experienced the phenomenon certainly gave us a very clear message about trust, responsibility, uh, not just any psychologist can pick this up and try to start seeing people and those who experience this phenomenon immediately will recognize that they have a narrow focus and it immediately can discount very important parts of their experience. So there's a great knowledge that those who are wanting to help need to obtain uh, and we are constantly, as therapists, gaining in our understanding. Uh, it's, it's really a teaching that goes both ways. So, you know, I think that these are all very important issues that we have to stay, uh, as David said, keep in mind very clearly, very clearly. 
But there was one of the professionals who was present who stated rather forcefully that it was absolutely impossible to do both investigation and therapy at the same time. What are you, some of you views on it? I'd like to address that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> indeed, we wear many hats, but as it has been already stated, a therapist is a natural data collector just because of the information, the content of the session. Now, as a therapist, I focus on the symptoms, the origin, the treatment, the resolution of that and in the process you may hear some pretty strange stuff and you're not going to discount that especially if you've already judged the person to be sane you're you're naturally going to be collecting data and you're not going to just pitch it in the waste can especially with something so bizarre as this so at one point in the process you're the therapist you're, you're really tuning into the emotional needs but when those have um, subsided and the person is doing well and you can deal a lot more with the data side and you can switch hats. You, you do not do both at the same time, but you can switch hats in the process. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot, of the, a lot of the problem here is in defining terms as it often is in discussions like this. Uh, I think when people in this business use the term investigator, they use it in the context of people who've gone out and examined CE1, C2, and CE3 cases. They interview the people and they remain detached and they take pictures and they collect soil samples. Uh, and that's fine, but uh, as therapists, we act as investigators of experience, mm -hmm. and that we cannot do that in a completely detached way. And I don't think an, an investigator who does not call himself a therapist primarily still can't do it in a completely detached way. I, most of the people who've been working in this as investigators have found themselves drawn into the support and the the therapeutic aspects of what they're doing. So it, we, maybe we need a new word, neither investigator nor therapist, but something else. And I'd like to add one more point, and that is it's, it's hard to wear both hats. So what many of us have already done is included uh, an investigator. Now, instead of thinking that they specifically deal with that part and I specifically deal with the therapy, um, it's really like just having two heads, two brains working on the problem. Mm -hmm. It's really just a teamwork approach. I'd like to mention one thing that's um, about the, the dual roles. <clears throat> Years ago, uh, when I first started looking at these cases, uh, I was using uh, various psychiatrists and psychologists uh, to do the hypnotic regressions. Uh, and I was there in the role of taking notes and observing and so forth. Uh, but the interesting thing was, as soon as we left, I would leave, of course, with the subject. The subject would be pouring out his or her heart to me about what had gone on. The person would call me at all hours of the night, we would have long discussions. And it dawned on me at some point that in a peculiar way, the person doing the hypnosis, the psychologist, was in a strange way the investigator and I was doing the therapy. <laughs> I was the one who was receiving the phone calls and trying to handle the person. Uh, and the other person's role, I mean, that was not, of course, as clear-cut as that. But it was a peculiar realization as to who was actually keeping that person afloat and what common sense skills one had to develop to do that. Um, so I, I agree with everything that's being said here is that it is extremely difficult to separate these roles. Yeah, I'd like to also to agree with that. Of course, it's uh, it's it's difficult to to separate the roles, and in and it's difficult to do therapy and to do investigation per se as such. I mean, this is a, a very tough subject, and uh, I think it can be done with a specific with a, a sufficient amount of training. I think that there 
they're complementary, and then I think that uh, my own guess is that a therapist probably would work better knowing exactly what has happened to the individual so they know what to work with and what to work on. And uh, if you combine these two with a certain amount of insight and compassion and humanity, you'll find out what is happening and you'll also find out the best ways to approach treatment. Uh, but this is, it's not easy and most people, as David, you say, who are UFO researchers uh, who've, who've gone and investigated CE1s and so forth, this is just not an area that, that they're, that's, e that's easy for them to get into. You know, it's very difficult. I think you can sum this up in terms of compassion, <coughs> trust, responsibility, and open-mindedness. Mm -hmm. In my own personal experience as an alleged investigator, I find it very, very difficult to do classical uh, investigation. I find myself being far more a therapist, a counselor. I do not feel comfortable with that at all because I'm not trained to do that. But, okay, anybody else like to add anything to that? <laughs> okay, then, oh, go ahead. Uh, I'd like to add one more thing about that. Uh, from time to time, people will send me tapes or transcripts of uh, investigations uh, that have been done, and sometimes they're done by therapists, and sometimes they're done by investigators. And I, I haven't really, I found investigators who do terrific jobs in support, in empathy, and sensitivity, and I found uh, therapists who are who are very insensitive and very closed-minded about what's happening, and not very helpful to people as well. well I think I'm a pretty good empath. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. I, I, I read recently a, a review of somebody's book about the abduction phenomenon, and uh, I mean, it was a blurb on the back of the book, and it said that this person is doing the correct thing by, uh, and, and dramatic thing, by assuming that these experiences are real to the person to whom they happen, mm -hmm. and skipping the question as to whether the events are real event level mm -hmm. occurrences. And of course, I think that that's got everything completely backwards because we all, would, everyone would agree, the experiences are real to the person to whom they happen. Even a, a, the worst skeptic in the world would say it's real to that person. Mm -hmm. The crucial thing to find out is did these events occur in in the real world? That's what that's what we should be concentrating on. And I don't think that any kind of of um, really proper therapy could even be administered if one. Uh, was trying to say, for instance, with an alleged rape, that to the therapist it made no difference whether the person was raped or whether the person fantasized the rape. I well, think the ther therapies yeah. would probably be quite different. Okay. But the, the problem is that uh, for people who are licensed therapists, for instance, they're presented with some, first of all, they're presented with somebody in pain, in distress, suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, some other problem. And uh, they don't know. Uh, one group of investigators might have a large number of cases and they know and, and they might go to a conference and they might know but in my position if I'm presented with somebody like that if I proceed on on the the firm belief that this actually happened in event level reality whether I believe it's true or not whether mm -hmm. it whether in fact actually is true or not mm -hmm. the end result of that could be that if I have a bad outcome from a case and all physicians have bad outcomes from cases no matter how good they are and all investigators and all investigators, we all do. So, and someone makes a complaint, then I end up having to be called in front of my disciplinary board to justify the fact that I was approaching this case as if this was an actual fact. And that's very difficult to justify to a very conservative medical board. And the end result of that kind of a situation is that I get shut down, probably all the other therapists in town get shut down, it hits the newspapers, and there's this tremendous backlash. So 
the therapists are in a, are in a, in a curious position of wanting to help the best they can and trying to walk this fine line. So I wouldn't be too hard on the therapist yeah, for taking that I wasn't trying to criticize the therapist. But, but that I, was, I, I think that what's before us is, is beyond the problem of whether the experiences are real to the people. I, we should all agree that they are. Some real. people don't. You see that? Yes. Even, even saying that they're real to the people in, in a conservative medical or psychological community, that's a stretch. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people think they're Napoleon and that's part of this. <laughs> but I think you do make a good point because for us to think that we know all about reality that there is and then try to uh, describe that to the patient uh, is, is a very tricky process because how can we be sure? Uh, we have to some extent if they seem sane and, and they have passed psychological testing and they indicate these things are real, we do have to at least consider that and that is where a lot of therapists do have a problem because given all that they still put the boundaries on what they believe and, and impart that to the patient. It's very interesting to see when that happens because they will make, they, they'll be logical, logical, logical. You'll point out to them how logic dictates that they are not psychotic, they're not hallucinating, they don't suffer from an organic illness. Therefore, this must be happening at some level of reality and they'll say, no. No, they won't. They won't yeah. go that extra step, yeah. even though logic dictates it. And you, you see this process with investigation too. Over the years, with each decade that passes, there's a certain chunk of this weirdness that we accept, but there's still this little bit that's too weird yet. And in in such an odd field, to call anything weird is is something in itself. <laughs> Oftentimes, this problem though is is solved by by the, the abductee or the person in front of you. Uh, many people come and they, they want to know, did this happen to me or am I crazy or did mm -hmm. I invent this in some way? And, and uh, But oftentimes uh, what happens is somebody, for instance, I had a situation where I had an attorney who uh, remembered something happened when he was 15 years old and uh, he remembered the whole sequence of events under investigation. And after it was over, the first words out of his mouth were, that was real. Mm -hmm. And there was no doubt in his mind whatsoever, and we just went from there. But if he was seeing uh, a conventional therapist who didn't, wasn't necessarily familiar with this, I, I've had patients who have done that, and they have left the therapist because the, the client was sure it was real, and the therapist was sure it was not real. Mm -hmm. And even though they were working on other issues, that created a crisis of trust, yeah. a loss of trust, yeah. and they split. It was very yeah. traumatic. The few abductees that I've uh, you know, followed over a long time, that being several years, since that's all as long as I've been interested in this, uh, I've talked to some who switched back and forth a couple times. I don't know if you see that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They'd start off saying, yes, it must have felt real. They'd walk out of your office and think about it for a couple of weeks, and they'd say, oh, no, that couldn't have been real. Mm -hmm. I think that we, we cannot overestimate the power of denial and the need for denial. That's on the part, I understand the skeptics. I, I understand all the way down to the abductee himself or herself, the basic need to put this on some shelf. This cannot have happened. And one of the most dramatic things that occurs all the time to me is when there is some bit of evidence or something that the abductee realizes is uh, confirmatory of the, of the truth of their experience. For instance, someone in, in a couple of cases have, have drawn exactly the same notational symbols that they've seen inside a ship as, as my subject did. When the subject was shown the other person's drawing, which I've done twice now, probably incorrectly, uh, that person, both those people burst into tears. They could not handle the fact that their 
what they regard as their last ability to deny had been taken away from them. This is disruptive of the entire fabric of society uh, as we know it. And uh, it's, there is a reason to deny it from every single solitary perspective, especially the perspective of the people who are having these experiences. Many uh, abductees gave us a very clear message during this conference that they would prefer to be crazy yes. as opposed to yeah. having this yeah. experience. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All of which brings about the it brings us back to the importance of a conference like this and informing the therapeutic community of just what might be out there, how to look for it and not misdiagnose it. I, I can't think of anything more horrifying than the, some of the stories I've heard about uh, the experience being drugged or even committed, mm -hmm. because no one recognized what might really be going on. Mm -hmm. I want to interject a brief cautionary note here, not that I'm, I'm arguing against the, the reality of this mm -hmm. particularly, but one of the things that my eyes certainly were opened up by, you know, our organizing this thing together and then hearing the speakers was the fact that there are these other mental, well, there, excuse me, in the case of uh, the ritual abuse, you, you have uh, a lot of the same kinds of things. You have uh, uh, multiple personal personality disorders that result from these experiences of people drawing pictures that mm -hmm. uh, look extremely similar. And then you have a large fraction of the community investigating them, saying with, uh, that, that these aren't real experiences. You know, so uh, th there are these parallels. I used to think that when you had two independent people who drew the same picture, well, there must be some real cause for that. And now I don't feel that way so strongly. Why? I don't understand. Why don't you feel so strongly? About because that? in the case of the ritual abuse, yes. you, I mean, the picture shown by different people of yes. you know just how they were held down and so on and so forth, and uh, you know where the bottle of blood was and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. They're very similar. Those pictures and and. Uh, Yet there, there are people who argue quite cogently, they were here at the conference, that, mm -hmm. that these experiences did not actually occur. Mm -hmm. And well, so, and then there are the business of uh, some of the people in the ritual abuse groups having shared, uh, shared dreams too. So, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, it, it just, uh, I don't know where that, how that fits into this, but it is disturbing. Right? Yeah, but it, it is, is disturbing. There is one thing that has to be remembered though. You can start finding parallels between abductions and a lot of other phenomena. Mm -hmm. And at a level of abstraction, it'll work quite well. Mm -hmm. But when you start getting down to looking at it case by case and very carefully, you begin to see certain consistent differences. Mm -hmm. yeah. The, the uh, shamanic initiation phenomenon has often been cited as a direct parallel. And yes, you can find all kinds of... Uh, of uh, points of similarity, but there are also some very significant differences, and there does seem to be overall in that, in that core uh, abduction phenomenon a coherency mm -hmm. that's, that's somehow qualitatively different. I, don't, I, I would also, uh, along the lines you're saying, say that the fact that you often see uh, multiple witnesses uh, to some events that are corroboratory at the beginning of the experience. Uh, you know, several people see the UFO and, and uh, mm -hmm. in, indicate that this one has seems to have more power to bring in several people together in a, in a testimonially documented fashion. Yes. And not just abuse. The, right, and not just at the beginning. Uh, if you take a case like Barney and Betty Hill, they had complementary 
abduction. Some people have said that, uh, okay, uh, Barney picked up Betty's dreams, but why was his internal experiences complementary to hers and not identical to hers? One, one of the important ideas that came out of this for me, a crystallization of an idea, was the idea of clustering, that, uh, so, that, that we may be dealing with uh, a group of clusters of phenomena that, as you say, have certain parallels at a level of abstraction, but when you get past that level of abstraction, they actually separate on into distinct events. But from the point of view of a therapist or an investigator that is seeing somebody cold off the street, they've had an experience that's beyond their conception. They haven't done all the reading into shamanic rituals, uh, satanic ritual abuse, abductions, and a host of other things. So they, what, what probably ends up happening is that they identify with the, the closest parallel that they encounter first, and then they end up presenting to a worker in that field. And it's, it's the responsibility of each worker in those fields that share certain parallels to educate themselves about all the clusters to be able to, to redirect the person appropriately. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And one thing that came out in this uh, conference was that there does seem to be a variety of causes that may have, you know, cause, have similar effects on people. And I, I don't uh, envy the therapist's position of having to try and sort out the, you know, as it, as it may be necessary to do in some cases. Given these various complications that arise, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the team, team concept of investigation. I assume most of you agree with that I, general notion. If you don't, feel free to say so. But what, what would be some of your recommendations for an appropriate investigative team? Anybody? Well, that's a very difficult question to answer. Uh, to answer it generically, uh, I think there, sh there should be in a team uh, both psychotherapeutically trained resources, mm -hmm. investigative resources, and experiencer resources. Uh, so many of the people that I've worked with, one of the first questions, I don't know, the first question that almost always comes up is, can I talk to other people that have had this experience? Mm -hmm. So these are basic resources that I think should be available. The, the order in which they're used and the proportion in which they're used is a very difficult question. I think it's part of what we're all still debating. I can add to that in terms of talking about the integration of those resources. Uh, the therapist who's interested in helping may be lacking a great deal in the knowledge of the phenomenon and needs that from the investigator. The investigator is lacking in the understanding of emotional trauma and the sensitivity and timing of such interventions to resolve it, uh, or even what even causes such symptoms. And um, the experiencer can be there as the support person. Well, actually, everybody ends up being a support person, but at least they have that unique perspective, which those of us assume we don't have. Um, and you blend those together nicely with the therapist basically retaining control during hypnosis sessions but getting information from the others and then as Bud mentioned earlier the others can become support persons it happens anyway so you might as well organize it that way well, well I was just saying one of the uh, situations when it was described that a team should be working with one person a therapist investigator and uh, and it, 
an experience or advertise, whatever you want to say. Uh, I would have added to that, of course, that's ideally wonderful. We should also have a radiologist. Right, <laughs> right. Good point. With a lot of money and so forth to help with the investigation. <laughs> the point is that we are spread incredibly thinly. Mm -hmm. and we are facing a gigantic problem with enormous numbers of people who are crying for help and are very, very confused. We do the best we can with the resources we have, and the mm -hmm. very nature of a meeting such as this was, uh, as a kind of subtext, uh, the idea that we're we're begging the people who attended the conference to put their own bodies on the line and uh, begin to aid in, in the investigation of this problem. It, it's almost a, a luxury to sit around and talk about what would be ideal when oh, sure. what we have now, it, the resources are so thin uh -huh. uh, and we're so strained uh, that uh, uh, just if, if we could triple what we have right now, it would just be a mere beginning. Well, Bud. It's not only ideal, it's exactly the way I've operated the last three years, so it's entirely possible. Yeah. I, I think it's time, and I agree with you on the flood of uh, needs that are coming at us, it's time we train more, because exactly. we don't have a hundred Bud Hopkins, we need a hundred Bud Hopkins, but we need to really bring in people and really start training them. Exactly. And then we have to somehow systematize the referral and the training, uh, getting everyone together out there too, and uh, get rid of these big boxes of letters you guys have. <laughs> right. No, we have to work out a series of protocols so that when a person comes to us and says something might have happened, a whole set of procedures can be set in motion, leading ultimately to treatment, investigation, and everything. And right now, people are just sort of doing it as best they can. Sometimes, in your case, it works out well. For other cases, uh, people just have to do it alone. Some people have some support, some don't. It's a situation that's not ideal, but as Bud says, uh, and as you're saying, essentially, we need to train more people, we need to get more help, and I think that, that that's going to come. I think that uh, almost uh, all the time we have uh, people coming forward, offering to help, and offering to do more things, and I'm, I'm fairly optimistic about this. Anybody else? <laughs> well, I don't know how, I think this has some degree of importance in the overall scheme of things. It's a, it's, it's a side point to what you mentioned, but, but you went off probably more important in the immediate direction. Uh, I, I'm, I believe myself at least to be a non-experiencer. That is, nothing unusual has ever really happened to me. Uh, I have a great sympathy for what these people are going through, and yet there is a point beyond which I just cannot really understand because it's beyond our consensus reality. On the other hand, one of the advantages of that is a certain objectivity. And it's also a kind of groundedness. That is, um, I encourage people to explore their experiences fully and to come to terms with it. But I'm also, in some ways, kind of a reminder that uh, a lot of their immediate life is still back here in this realm. And I find that in, in the dynamics that go on in my work, that provides a really nice balance. So I think somehow we also have to integrate that into the overall process. It's almost as if all of us are adjusting. I mean, we focus on them as making adjustments, but we are making adjustments as well. And it's, it's almost like a grieving process of what we have always known. We have lost that, and we are having to go through the different phases of grieving that and accepting a whole new way of looking at things, which abductees in many cases are well ahead of us. <laughs> I think that, uh, just a second one, David just said about reminding the people about where their real life lies. Part of my whole approach to what I do when I work with people is that very thing, to point out that 
that we spend 99.999 of whatever percent of our life here on this earth, no matter what strange things are happening. Um, and in order to accent that, when I have a support group, the support group uh, meetings are roughly 50% uh, party and 50% uh, discussing issues because the party aspect of it, to feel that you can be with other people who have the same crazy experiences you had, and yet those people are interesting and intelligent and fun to talk to, and you can sit around with a glass of wine or a cup of coffee and be a, a real, alive human being in a real live community mm -hmm. uh, which, where you're accepted is extremely important. And I don't ever try to focus the support group thing in terms of just even amount of maximum amount of time on to the UFO subject. I think that this groundedness is one of the most important therapeutic things we can do. It doesn't, it doesn't take a therapist to help somebody have a nice time in the real world with, with some companions who you can come to love and respect, who've had your experiences. Okay, um, let's talk a little while now about uh, what's next on the agenda. Where do we go from here? What's, what's the state of the art? And in that same context, suppose there are people watching this who may be experiencers. If anybody has any recommendations on <laughs> for well, them. May I, may I just uh, sure. interject something a little bit ahead of that? Okay. Uh, because I wanted to discuss what to me was one of the important outcomes or realizations, I think, of many people at the conference. And that, uh, which also has its antidote, and that is that, you know, it seems from the Roper poll that a lot of people have symptoms that uh, are associated in the reverse direction uh, with um, being an experiencer. And there are a couple of studies with very low statistics presented that indicate that these may be used as questions. Some of the questions, like the ones in the Roper poll, may be in fact used to pull out uh, people who are experiencers. And this, uh, on the one hand, indicates that the fraction of experiencers in the general population is tremendously high, maybe in the low percent level. Um, and now that cuts both ways. The first way it cuts is it means that the sample of people we've gotten are only one thousandth, the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. And so the way that we've selected them inadvertently or the way they selected themselves is, is a tremendous possible source of bias on what's really out there. On yes. the other hand, the fact that this uh, is such a prevalent uh, seems to be such a prevalent thing in uh, the general population means that we can select people uh, in a very unbiased way. We can mm -hmm. go out and search mm -hmm. them out. For instance, the people who responded right. with four or five positives mm -hmm. in the Roper poll. And I think it's clear that uh, these people should be followed up and that they will be followed up, even given the, the tremendous overload that we have in the, among the investigators and therapists. Yeah. In but given that they uh, often do this on their own timetable, how is that going to affect things if you go out well, and start trying to push them no, into the no, other. No, you, you have to wait until they see or feel a need uh, to explore it. Right. Uh, they may have these symptoms, but they may not want to do anything about That's right. it. Oh, oh, certainly not, yeah. but a number of them indicated in the poll that, that they're willing to be followed up so you can That's follow right. up and yeah, explore sure. this issue. Okay, yeah. I, I, I would share your view that you shouldn't push anyone into therapy or, or right. investigation. It doesn't. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. 
I, I think that the next thing that has to be done, however, and, and one of the more important ideas that I've gotten from the conference is that we must have a, a standardization in methodology, methodology mm -hmm. and in treatment uh, that is agreed upon by, by most people who do this sort of work. Uh, I think that this is extremely important so that we can learn what the parameters of this phenomenon uh, are and also so that we can learn the proper modes of treatment. Uh, I think this is coming, but uh, right now we still have an awful lot of work to do with that. And, uh, of course, we also need, as we mentioned before, we need to simply enlist more people in doing this. And uh, the Roper Poll study has shown that there's an awful lot of therapists out there who are willing to donate their time and to at least to look, look into it further. And uh, we hope that we'll be able to get a significant number of them who will actually engage in this kind of work. And so we're, we're quite optimistic about that part. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the uh, uh, aspects of the conference which suggests that bit of a problem to me is uh, there seem to be uh, a tendency from time to time to slip into discussions of the nature of the aliens, quote unquote, whatever they may be, as to whether they're helping us or hurting us. The good whatever. guys versus bad the guys. The good guys versus the bad guys mm -hmm. and so forth. And of course, I think essentially that gets into almost a kind of theological argument. And I think we must concentrate our attention on what is happening to human beings mm -hmm. and help them explore their own personal experiences. Because I think if you, if you start dealing with whether or not you have been, uh, these are enemies, these are friends, or whatever, uh, you're providing yourself with either food for paranoia or some kind of rationalizations uh, that can feed a certain kind of denial. We've got to get people, I think, away from those judgments, but what one way or the other. What happens when it's the experiencers who make that judgment, though? Well, we see that happening. I, I, think that, I think that one of the problems is that uh, the, the investigator or, and or therapist mm -hmm. involved uh, can have an undue influence in that area. And I've, I think we've seen examples at the conference, I have, of uh, feeling a certain sort of theological line Mm -hmm. uh, being uh, paid out by a mm -hmm. uh, therapist, investigator, or whatnot, uh, which I think uh, is not, in other words, it's almost as if they're trying to decide the nature and moral uh, uh, qualities of the germs without trying to figure mm -hmm. out what the disease is. Mm -hmm. this, this, is a, this is a very complex question because it, uh, we, uh, it, it turns back to the question of investigator versus therapist, depending on how you want to define those terms, and the balance between uh, when do you have enough information versus, which is what the investigator wants. The investigator wants complete information, and the therapist's primary goal is to return the patient to a state of emotional stability. Mm -hmm. And if one is working a case through to a certain point, and psychologically there appears to be a calm and a resolution, but one may not have a, a full corpus of data, then what do you do? Now, as a therapist, uh, my primary obligation is to maintain their health. It may be, it is conceivable that we have not worked through the full body of material, but perhaps we have reached a plateau for that person at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, to force it through, that's a, that's, that's a difficult decision. And most of the time, actually, I don't do it because I still know with, with certainty so little about it, but they know that I'm available for them, whether it's in a month or six months or a year, I'm still there. Right. So I don't really care how long the investigation yeah. takes. I, I agree, yeah. David. I don't think anybody wants to force somebody to sure. through to anything. I mean, right. I, and I'm not implying time that. to think about that. I know. 
we don't have the time for that. But I think that uh, that the the biggest cloud on the horizon, actually, as I see it, uh, is a kind of theological argument, mm -hmm. which is, a, I think, essentially a waste of time. Yeah. Uh, it misses yeah. the point all the way around. But that's the way the experiencers, uh, in, or certain ones of them, seem to be taking it. To certain them, it's, a, it's beginning to be a profound philosophical or religious issue. So yeah. they, are, they are introducing well, Perhaps yeah. that's a method of their coping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If yeah, they, they choose so. that and it works for them and it doesn't hurt them or anybody yeah. else, it's okay. No, I, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. I completely agree with that. You know, I, one of the, I want to ask a question here about Dave, really. One of the things that I've observed in the difference between uh, investigators and therapists, or I don't want to paint it that black, between those two different uh, logical mm -hmm. systems, is the difference in, in what is perceived as uh, progress or truth. Uh, to the investigator, it's case-to-case it's -case, uh, reproducibility, and to the therapist, many times it seems to be a, uh, a big change in how the person relates to the phenomenon. Now, in your work, do you feel that uh, lines of investigation or approach, to a more neutral word, that result in a, a change, significant change in how the person views the experience, would you regard that as something to be encouraged or stay away from or a positive indicator that you're on the right track or do you think this indication you're beginning to relieve these, mislead these people in uh, religious ways? Uh, well, I, I don't uh, try to lead them into any view of their, of, of the nature of the experience. We just try to uncover what actually happened. Right, right. Uh, I don't uh, care what do and when I have a support group meeting, one of the things I have to do is to some extent, a referee between people who want to <laughs> break the necks of the aliens and other people who feel they've had some kind of spiritual growth as a result. And it's fine by me, I don't care which ones, but uh, the, the, the point is, the uh, it's an argument that, that leads nowhere, and we want resolution, but of course, I've, I'm feeling very often that people who have come to uh, a very, very positive view of the experience uh, have just, uh, in a certain sense, constructed a silver lining, which is yeah. perhaps postponing the true effect of the disillusionment that's bound to come, yeah. and the problems, and so on. So I see it as, in a certain sense, a problem of therapy. That's right. I think I think what you're saying, and, and what I find also, is that, uh, to me, uh, it, however the, the abductee handles it is up to the to the circumstances and the background and the upbringing of the abductee and whatever works for them is the best way and we'll work with that um, as long as it brings uh, relief and, 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 and some sort of therapeutic value. The danger is having the therapist or the investigator uh, have a structure of his or her own that they overlay on the mm -hmm. experience mm -hmm. and sort of steer the abductee into that that structure, mm -hmm. and uh, that has a totally different agenda, yeah. and that can be quite quite dangerous, yeah. I think. Don't try to steer them away from yeah. oh, yes. oh, right. Yeah. A, a, very, a very quick example of something I was horrified was uh, one man who uh, uh, it was a therapist who uh, insisted that uh, uh, aliens were much more trustworthy than human beings, and that one of his ritual things he tells a new uh, abductee he was working with, or experience or whatever, uh, is that he has to fill them in on the government cover-up and the extent to which the government is lying. And I thought, how in the world would any therapist feel, uh, have the nerve to say that something he has to present to his, mm -hmm. uh, to his patient or his client? I mean, yeah. uh, it's a, that's, again, almost theology. That, that kind of a problem 
uh, is offensive, but it, it, it's not unique to this phenomenon. It's, it comes up in all kinds of therapeutic cases, uh, and it's just it's bad work. And the problem is that it's, it's, it's hard to find good people like it's hard to find a good pizza in town. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a problem, damn it, that we all face. Exactly. <laughs> well, from the standpoint of a data shuffler, uh, <laughs> the, the uh, completeness of any one given case is not all that significant if you have enough cases. The overall body of the thing, you know, it'll all equal out in the end if there is genuinely some kind of equality in there. So, you know, by all means, I would say look out first and only for the, the good of the, uh, of the, Absolutely. Of the right. person. Mm -hmm. yes. and, uh, and, and the data will take care of itself, as yes. long as everybody communicates that data. Yes. That's, that's an excellent point. The, the duty, I think, to who, whoever is doing the research, whether it's research or investigation therapy, is for the clients or the patients in front of them, and their, their well-being is number one on the, on the priority exactly. list, and collection of data is number two, and number two is in a much lower uh, level. I had an example of working with a 13 uh, or 14-year-old girl who was uh, a born-again Christian who uh, was in tears and shock after an abduction which she remembered consciously because she, when she was on the table and things were being done to her body, she was praying to God to save her and take her out of there. And God didn't save her and take her out. Mm -hmm. And I found myself having a long, long discussion about why the, that should not be damaging to her faith because mm -hmm. I was certain that there were other times she'd prayed for some sort of deliverance that, mm -hmm prayers one reason or another had not answered. And here I was, from the point of view of someone fairly agnostic. And now you're doing the theologian. To help, this, you know, to help this young woman get back the a support that seemed to be very crucial to her life and what she needed at that point. Mm -hmm. So I think we do have to, uh, uh, we have to use every possible tool mm -hmm. that's uh, available to help that person regardless of, of uh, data or Okay, good. That's a, that's a very good note to close on, and I want to thank you all very much for your cooperation. Thank you. Just add one thing, uh, and that is that uh, one of the big problems in this field is, is resources. You know, yes. we, we're beginning to get uh, people who volunteer to collect up a number of MRI or CAT scans uh, or who are going to deal with uh, alien writing or something like this, I mean, we're beginning to get into the specialist regime, mm -hmm. but all of this kind of thing, and, and the investigation, physical evidence in particular, but data banks and standardized uh, psychological testing forms requires money. And I really think that uh, the people out there have got to start supporting <laughs> the fund for UFO research with a little bit more than uh, 25 or $50. I mean, some serious uh, resources are needed in this field. And the progress is clearly being held back because they aren't there. That's even a better note to close on. Thank you. <laughs>
If you're an abductee and you need somebody to talk to, feel free to message me at theufosyahoo.com and I will talk to you. Or I will put you in contact with somebody who can help you. It doesn't have to be shared on my podcast. I'm just looking to help people with the contact experience because I know it's not always the greatest. So if you need that help, please reach out to me. I'm here to help you. That's the whole point of these podcasts. You can reach out to people like me, Preston Dennett, Debbie Cobble, many others. If you're needing help, please reach out. You will not be ridiculed by us. I want to thank you.